I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. One evening in the late 1970s, several months before they were recruited to join the inaugural Chicano squad, Cecil Mosqueda and his partner Bobby Gatewood were on patrol. Cecil had already been a police officer for at least four years, while Bobby was fresh off probation. Bobby was a good officer, very positive by himself, sure of himself, strong. He was the kind of guy that you wanted as an officer. They hear a call come over the radio for a burglary alarm at a church. The two are looking for something to do, so they sign themselves onto the call and speed to the scene. It's probably a false alarm, but as police officers, they have to treat it seriously. Cecil checks the perimeter of the church, looking at each window and door and around every corner and doesn't see anything suspicious. Bobby inspects the inside of the building and everything seems fine. Cecil is ready to clear the scene and get back on patrol, so he heads into the church to find his partner. Inside, Bobby is talking to a nun. He says, I don't believe in no God. You are who you are. You make your own bed. You are who you are. There's no God. He's telling this to the nun. Cecil, a devout Catholic, was horrified, as was the nun. And I turned around and said, get here, you fool. And I told him, I said, Bobby, what are you telling her that? What is wrong with you? And he just said, well, I'm, tell- I'm just telling her the way I feel, see? So you, you are you are. You make whatever you want because you're, you're your own person. I said, but you don't say that, Bobby. Not to her. In the process of making this series, getting any of the Chicano Squad members to talk about Bobby Gatewood including Bobby Gatewood himself, proved challenging. But it's telling that 40 years later, when asked about his old partner, this is one of the first stories Cecil remembers. And in many ways, it's fitting. It's a story about faith, or in Bobby's case, the lack of it. Bobby Gatewood is a complicated man. But the story of the Chicano squad is forever tied to him and him to it. Because by the end of his time there, many people would have their faith shaken in a squad they'd come to trust. I'm Cristel Alonso. I'm a comedian and activist. And this is a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. The story of a young band of Latino police officers thrust into an impossible, unwinnable situation by a police department with their back against the wall. With little training and even fewer resources, they were assigned to solve the city's toughest crimes. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad. 
In the middle of the night on November 3, 1988, a man and a woman were found shot to death in their car. The scene was littered with shell casings. Someone had been angry. After the bodies were discovered that night, two Chicano squad officers, Bobby Gatewood and his partner, John Castillo, were called out to investigate the crime scene. In the morning, they passed the case on to Jaime Escalante, Castillo's former partner. As Jaime remembers, the couple had been involved in a drug deal gone wrong. They were kidnapped and they didn't want to disclose where the money was, so they shot and killed him. The man and the woman had been in a relationship but had separate addresses. Police searched both residences. One of them, it turned out, was a stash house full of drug paraphernalia like scales and baggies. The other address appeared to be where the couple actually lived. By 1988, the drug cartels and the gangs they associated with were a well-established organized crime front in Houston, and the violence was a runaway train. No law enforcement agency was going to stop it. Now, they were simply trying to catch as many bad guys as possible. The Chicano Squad, which was born out of an attempt to stem the violence in Latino communities, was thrust right into the middle of this new, more vicious theater of crime and murder. And the cases were significantly more challenging to solve since they required an understanding of each different criminal organization's relationships, rivalries, and grudges. The cartels left bodies hacked up, bloodied, and beaten everywhere. To solve these murders, you needed help on the inside. You needed a guide to the spider web that was the cartel structure. But for Bobby Gatewood, a founding member of the squad, making a successful leap into narcotics crimes proved difficult. Now, a quick note here about the story we're about to tell you. John Castillo, who you'll hear more about in this episode, died in 2011 at the age of 61. And Bobby Gatewood declined to speak to us on the record. What we know about their conversations and actions come from exhaustive research, including documents and interviews. Using actors, we've recreated direct quotes from Bobby Gatewood and other trial witnesses obtained under the Texas Public Information Act and pulled largely from court transcripts. So, spoiler alert, it's going to be a bumpy ride for Bobby. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Defendant Gatewood is on the stand. Mr. Jacobs is performing his direct examination. You may proceed, sir. All right, sir. And where were you born? Houston, Texas. Did you go to high school here in Houston? Uh, Milby High School. Did you graduate from high school? Yes, sir. It was 1969, 10 years before the founding of the Chicano Squad, and a 20-year-old Houston kid named Robert Martinez Gatewood, known as Bobby, was looking for something better to do than drive tow trucks like his uncle and cousins. City jobs were safe from the boom and bust oil cycle that pummeled so much of the city, and the Houston Police Department was hiring. A tall, athletic local boy who was smart and a sharp dresser, 
Bobby Gatewood made it through a recruitment interview and was welcomed into a cadet class. A few months later, he graduated and joined the ranks of the police department. He wouldn't be able to stay there in good standing for long. While still in his probationary period, Bobby went out drinking one night and got into a fight with some kids in the fancy Houston enclave city of Bel Air. He was quickly fired from HPD. It would take seven more years and a tour of duty in Vietnam with the U.S. Army before Bobby got another chance at becoming a policeman. It came in 1977. He applied to a Houston police cadet class and was accepted. This time, he flew through the academy and stayed on his best behavior through probation. Bobby Gatewood was a police officer once more. He was eventually partnered up with Cecil Mosqueda and they patrolled the Northeast Division of Houston. As a pair, they were good. During this time period, or up until this time, had you received any commendations or awards? Yes, sir. My partner and myself received the Chief's Commendation Award for arresting two suspects, one for capital murder and 55 armed robberies. A Chief's Commendation was a rarity, but within a few years, Bobby Gatewood had two in his personnel file, including one with Cecil Mosqueda. They were young and hungry. It wasn't long before Jim Montero, who helped found the Chicano squad, recognized their promise. At that point... He mentioned something to my partner that they were thinking of um, forming a, a squad of Hispanic officers to challenge all the homicides that the homicide division had been receiving. When Jim Montero asked Cecil Mosqueda to join the squad, Cecil replied that he'd only do it if his friend and partner Bobby could, too. Jim hadn't realized that Bobby, light-skinned, with a last name that didn't sound Latino, was qualified. But Cecil told Jim to give him a shot. He spoke Spanish perfectly, and he was a damn good cop and partner. And so, in 1979, Bobby became one of the first five members of the Chicano squad, a band of brothers, a fraternity of Latino crime fighters. Bobby was a very flamboyant kind of guy, very well-liked. On the Chicano squad, Bobby quickly built a reputation as a smooth-dressing, charming, funny, and politically savvy officer. He was a likable guy. He was bigger. I mean, he was like 5'10", you know, and stout. And he was a heck of an athlete. This guy could have been anything, man. Cecil says, heck of an athlete. Here's how Bobby put it. And what were you active in, sir? Um, well, you want to know everything? Yes, sir. Basketball. I was playing for the homicide basketball team and the main police basketball team. I was on several softball teams, homicide division, robbery division. Uh, we had a new softball team that had come up for the first time in the police department, which is called the Tex-Mex team. It was all the best Hispanic ball players, softball players in the police department, and I was part of that. So yeah, Bobby was athletic. Bobby was also smart. He was the first one that ranked up. And all the other guys in the squad, the original guys, we all did. Everybody studied, but out of everybody, Bobby got in. Bobby passed the detective exam before anyone else on the squad, including Cecil, 
who made Detective right behind him. Bobby, he was a show-off kind of guy, just kind of a crazy, flamboyant kind of guy, man's man. He was also such a big talker that the rest of the Chicano squad gave him a nickname to match. Here's Jim Montero, the founder of the Chicano squad, on the witness stand being questioned by a lawyer. And you thought Bobby was crazy, right? Yes, sir. And he's got a nickname up in homicide, doesn't he? Yes, sir. That nickname is Gatemouth, isn't it? Yes, yes, sir. Gatemouth. Bobby would need all the smooth talking he could muster for what was to come. An avalanche of illegal drugs has inundated our city in recent years, and Houstonians are fighting harder than ever to dig their way out of the debris left by crack cocaine. In the 1980s in Houston, the crack cocaine epidemic was front and center in the minds of many. As it rolled on, more and more of the Chicano Squad cases were narcotics-related. Bad people did bad things, and it was hard to feel sorry for them. At least that's how some police officers saw narcotics-related homicides, including, as Jaime Escalante remembered, Bobby Gatewood. He never liked to work dope cases. He was like, why worst all this manpower? He didn't like working them. A few years after the Chicano Squad was created, Jaime Escalante was brought on with the almost singular mission to solve narcotics-related homicides. He obviously felt differently. He also felt differently about Bobby. The truth is, there wasn't much love lost between the two. When I met him, he was up in homicide, and Bobby would challenge you. What did you say? And I go, really, Bobby? Dude, I didn't say anything, but I ain't afraid of you. The cramped office the Chicano squad had to work in might have just been a little too small for both of them. Like, dude, I can kick your ass. And he goes, dude, let's go to the ring right now and put the gloves on. I said, I'll embarrass you. He goes, no, come on. And Bobby could kick my ass. I was just, you know, (laughs) I would just make fun of him. By 1985, the Chicano squad had grown from its original five investigators and added members like Jaime and John Castillo, who transferred in from narcotics. Jaime Escalante enjoyed working with him when they partnered up on drug-related homicides. Me and John bonded because we were on a mission to clear all those Colombian cases, and we feared nothing. And and John was by the book. When he rode with me, when, when he started hanging around with Gatewood, you know, He made some bad decisions. Since it began, the Chicano squad had been extremely tight-knit and dedicated. They'd often worked long hours and rarely were paid overtime. They'd maintained that schedule throughout the frenzied Cantina killing era in waves of narcotics-related violence. In 1987, the Chicano squad was bigger than ever before, with 13 members, but still struggled to keep up with the drug cartel enforcers. They'd call you at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and that's when they would always call you. Holidays or in the middle of the night, and you do what you gotta do. It was critical to interview potential witnesses and victims as quickly as possible. For almost a decade, a different officer was assigned to the overnight shift every month. When murders occurred overnight, the night officer would conduct any Spanish-language interviews. But the night shift was about to change. All right, and did there come a time when you went on the nighttime shift at HPD? Yes, sir. 
And can you tell us, as best you can recall, approximately when that would have been? Uh, when it started in 87, I stayed on till, I think, uh, January or February of 1980. For three years, Bobby worked the night shift exclusively. While most people dread their night shift rotation, for Bobby, there were several upsides. On the night shift, they could be somewhat autonomous. Now, during that time period, what was the main responsibility of the night shift as far as homicides were concerned? Uh, just to go with the sergeants who were called out to the scene to make, uh, in other words, if they had a scene, the preliminary sergeants would make it and I would go in case they needed interpreting. While the day shift officers were responsible for following up on investigations, night shift officers just had to work scenes without all the brass around that were there during the day. For a guy who had been seen as a real go-getter, it seemed like an odd turn. But the truth was, Bobby wasn't in the same place as he'd been when he started at HPD. After seven years of homicide, I was burned out. I was tired, yeah. For Bobby, the night shift meant freedom from the drudgery of combing through leads and following up with drug cases. And for the rest of the Chicano squad, a dedicated night shift detail would mean they would be relieved of their monthly rotation as the on-call duty officer. So they, they worked a 7 to 3 shift. So when they did that, I said, okay, well, that's good. There was another upside to the night shift for Bobby. Overtime hours were being limited for homicide investigators in cash-strapped Houston. For officers who relied on overtime to supplement their income, it was a blow. But working overnight allowed Bobby and John to have their days free. And Bobby had a whole new title during the day. Entrepreneur. He and his wife opened MVP Silkscreen and Puffscreen Incorporated, a t-shirt printing shop. He had one foot in public service, sure, but his other foot was working hard in the business world. So it's true. From 87 to 90, all I did was work on my business and just going out and interpreting and coming back and that's it. Another thing that happened when Bobby and John moved to the night shift, suddenly they didn't see much of the other Chicano squad members. Cecil Mosqueda again. There's when we started losing track of John Castillo and Gatewood. We were working days. Every now and then, I would see Gatewood was there. It had been a while since Cecil Mosqueda had seen his old partner. One day, Cecil walked in the office to grab his keys after working out in the gym and saw Bobby reading a book. Trump, before he became a president, he wrote a book way back then, how he made his billions or millions or whatever he did being a successful businessman. And he wrote a book, and Bobby was reading that book. The Art of the Deal. Of course, that book's got a whole new significance today. Back then, it was a phenomenon. Yeah, I'm reading this book. See, I want to become a billionaire like this guy right here. I remember he had telling me that. I said, really? I wasn't paying attention. I didn't even know who Trump was. But Trump's words were speaking to Bobby. I want to see how he did it. So that's the ambition that Bobby had. He was seeing a different vision somewhere else. Ambition. That's the one word that everyone we spoke to used 
to describe Bobby. Everyone except Jaime Escalante. Gatewood, he was always trying to uh, start businesses, and he was like high maintenance. You know, he'd see him with his gold and, you know, perfume. On the night shift, one case could keep Bobby tied up for hours, and no doubt there were nights of back-to-back scenes. But on some shifts, the phone stayed quiet. He was just sitting around kind of waiting for a homicide scene to drop. I didn't like it because here was two guys that were not really being supervised. They had a lot of free time. So they're sitting around the office, kind of looking at each other. What do we do? Idle time is evil time. Cecil and Bobby, once great friends and patrol partners, began to grow apart. They'd come a long way together. From patrolmen sharing a bachelor pad as their marriages struggled, to detectives in one of HPD's most hardworking squads. But joining the squad also allowed them to find their own paths. My work ethics and his work ethics were totally different. His mind was somewhere else. I was always working. So we kind of split there for a while. In 1987, Houston murders were down from their peak in 1980. But there was still plenty to solve. 323. And a shocking number of them were assigned to the Chicano squad. Records reveal that in that year alone, the squad was assigned 96 of those homicides. That's almost one-third of the homicides in Houston being assigned to just 13 investigators on the Chicano squad. It's astounding. Jaime had been dealing with mountains of narcotics-related homicides. Since bodies frequently fell at night, Bobby Gatewood and John Castillo were often among the first detectives on the scene. They'd hand the cases off to the day shift, to guys like Jaime Escalante. They started working a lot of the dope cases. Like, they would make the scene. They wouldn't do any follow-ups. And when in the morning, I would get the case. It had been an exhausting few months for Jaime, whose beeper was constantly being paged by confidential informants. He had just wrapped up a taxing case as a pivotal player in the search for the Colombians who killed a Sugarland police officer. Jaime's specialty was investigating the kind of narcotics-related homicides that required access. This was a group of criminals who were motivated only by drugs and money, didn't care about legal consequences, and flaunted their cash with fancy cars, jewelry, and expensive clothes. See... Escalante was a a different type of police officer. He would go to the wakes of these Colombians, and there he would get all the license numbers of cars used to go view the body. He would also go to the book and get the names of the people that were signing into the books. And of course, I, I never knew things like that. I never did anything like that when I was working the regular Hispanic killings. But Jaime had a different way of doing things, and they were very successful. The man was good at what he did, and I respect him for it. He was cocky and arrogant, but he's still a damn good police officer. Jaime's secret ingredient was empathy. He cared about the addicts and the sex workers, the people seen as the bottom of society. And that empathy became trust trust that was returned to him as valuable information. When they communicated with me, they thought they were safe. I I would never try to burn the informant, no matter what. 
Jaime took great pride in keeping his informants safe and getting confessions from criminals, and his dedication paid off. In November of 1988, the Hispanic Officer of the Year Award went to Jaime Escalante. He was only 29 years old and a two-year veteran of the Chicano Squad. Jaime's star was on the rise. But for another Chicano Squad golden boy, Bobby Gatewood, things were beginning to look a little different. He was used to being the guy that everyone knew, but now he was just a night shift detective working while everyone else was asleep. And during the day, he was sweating in front of the hot machinery at his t-shirt printing company. He was burning the candle at both ends. Turning his business into a successful enterprise was more difficult than Donald Trump had let on. Bobby may have been hoping for a quiet shift when he reported for duty on November 3rd, 1988, but that wasn't in the cards. Instead, he and John Castillo had been called out to the scene of a brutal double murder. As investigators combed the crime scene, Houston police went to search for evidence and clues as to who the victims were and why they'd ended up pummeled with lead. All of their reports were handed to Jaime Escalante the next morning. He had already received a tip from an informant, too. But things weren't quite adding up. Literally. According to his informant, the couple had been kidnapped for their drug money. It was rumored to be $2 million. They refused to tell their kidnappers where their cash was, so they were killed. The informant called me and goes, hey, Inside that apartment that they searched, there was $70,000 in a shoebox. The $2 million from the stash house was gone. But according to the informant, there was more cash hidden in their apartment. The couple's personal spending money. They had already searched the two sergeants. The two sergeants Jaime is talking about are Bobby Gatewood and John Castillo. I read the report and go, hey, they didn't find anything in there. And the informant goes, hey, yeah, right. He goes, there was. That's a shoebox in there with $70,000. Jaime had heard rumors from informants that a couple of officers were ripping off Colombian drug dealers. A dangerous prospect, in addition to being illegal. Jaime couldn't help but look at his colleagues with suspicion. The officers the night before had been able to track down two addresses related to the murdered couple. At the first apartment, investigators recovered a few thousand dollars in cash. It was logged, marked, and recorded in the reports, and then turned in as evidence. Next, Bobby Gatewood and John Castillo went to search the second apartment. In their report, they wrote that they hadn't found anything. Working off of his informant's tip about the shoebox full of cash, Jaime and another officer went back to the apartment to search for where the box was supposed to be. They had searched it, but it was more like they, everything was thrown everywhere. Everything was in disarray. The home had been absolutely picked apart. But they had missed the shoebox stacked with cash in the closet where it sat undisturbed. So his informant had been right. There was money in the apartment, but Castillo and Gatewood hadn't found it or made any mention of why they ransacked the place. 
something you obviously wouldn't do if you were trying to preserve evidence in a crime. Jaime Escalante had spent years learning everything there was to know about the narcotics-related homicides that plagued Houston. He'd gotten so good that he could read those crime scenes like a book. But now, suddenly, it was like pages had been torn out. There was missing money and a troubling accusation from one of his informants implicating a fellow Chicano squad officer in... What? Jaime wasn't sure, but he did know one thing. Whatever this was, it was not going to end well. More after the break. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Eurovision. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Even though he couldn't identify any wrongdoing, the whole thing smelled fishy to Jaime. Maybe he was paranoid, but he started to carry his case files with him, even though that sort of thing violated policy. His files often contained the sensitive intel he received from his informants. Jaime even stopped putting his home address on personnel paperwork. By then, I didn't trust anything. Jaime knew that something was amiss at HPD. He tried to alert the higher-ups. We had a meeting with a couple of assistant chiefs, and my captain was there. We go, like, what's more important, a homicide or money? We need to know. Because, you know, you guys, right now it's money. Jaime knew that if rumors about money missing from crime scenes were true, it meant more than a ripped-off drug dealer. I said, okay, so we've had all these Colombians killed, and the reason they're being killed, because there's a big discrepancy on what's uh, tagged. With millions of dollars changing hands regularly, counting money for the cartels was a crucial part of business. When law enforcement agencies made a big bust, they always showed off their bounty on the news. And if cartels noticed a difference in how much they thought should have been at a stash house and what officials supposedly confiscated, it didn't end well. The family's been counting money for the cartel for years. 
and uh, there's a big discrepancy on how much money was tagged. So the cartel kills the person. As Jaime's spidey sense started tingling, another unusual thing caught his attention. One day, he was talking to an informant about a case when the informant dropped Sergeant Bobby Gatewood's name and said that Bobby had been asking questions. I'm thinking, why is he working that case? He's not even, it's, it's, it's my case. For Bobby Gatewood, things had finally started looking up. Bobby's good-natured charm and the connections he'd made to other law enforcement agencies through playing in interagency sports leagues helped him score contracts for his t-shirt business with the Houston Marshals, the Texas Game Warden, the LaPorte Police Department, and more. He supplied these agencies with whatever they needed, like t-shirts, raid jackets, baseball caps, and polo shirts. Bobby had learned the art of the deal. And while Bobby had always been stylish, or gaudy, depending on who you asked, his wardrobe had certainly gotten flashier. All of a sudden, he had these nice suits, you know. Bobby was dressing real nice. He bought a new house and took his family on trips to ski resorts in Hawaii. Cecil was pleased for his old friend, the guy who had started out on the force as his patrol partner and was now prospering. I said, man, that's good. So I go out there in the parking lot, and, and I look at the car he was driving. I said, wow, man, that's a nice car. I said, I'm happy for you, Bob. I said, man, I said, hey, you got your business, you're making all this money. I said, man, you, I mean, you're doing good. In early 1989, Jim Montero, the sergeant who had handpicked the original members of the Chicano squad, including Bobby and Cecil, announced that he was going to retire. Before Jim's retirement party, he joined the tightly knit squad he'd created in a group photograph. In it, they posed as Mexican revolutionary leaders. Chicano squad member Raymond Gonzalez couldn't remember whose idea the photo was, but he said they were all on board. In their minds, they had revolutionized policing in Houston. They went to a costume shop and told the employees what they had planned. Hey, yeah, take what you need and as long as you bring it back. The officers borrowed denim, bright colored blankets and ponchos, cowboy boots and sombreros, and headed to some stables where they met a police department photographer. In the picture, the officers pose sitting or standing near bales of hay, looking sternly at the photographer. Jim is holding a shotgun with ammunition strapped across his chest and a baby blue bandana around his neck. The other members of the squad stand nearby, all striking poses, holding lassos and tequila and shotguns. And then there's Bobby Gatewood, several feet from the others perched on top of a gray horse. Years later, the image would be viewed as racist, leaning on stereotypical caricatures of Mexicans. Carlos Calvillo, a longtime Houston documentarian and activist, remembers seeing the photo and bristling at the stereotypes. And I said, what is that? I looked up and I went close and saw it. I said, I can't believe this. You would think that a group of Mexican police officers dressing up like bandidos, even as a joke, was just way over the line. But for many others in the Hispanic community, the iconic photograph was a memento to be proud of. Restaurateurs hung it proudly on their walls for diners to see, as did business owners, the squad supervisors, and the squad members themselves. 
Once, Chicano Squad member Raymond Gonzalez even saw the photo staring back at him inside the home of a gang member he'd gone to talk to about a shooting. Just kind of surprised uh, the people who are proud of the Chicano Squad or they have a Hispanic squad that, you know, they can look up to, I guess. The photo captured something about the squad that spoke to their origin, that was a glimpse of their history and their commitment to each other and to their colleagues. But behind that photo, some of that trust that had bonded them together and bonded them to their community was starting to erode. In 1990 and 1991, Houston's murder rate continued its upward climb, reaching over 30 per 100,000 residents, three times the national rate. The widespread use of crack cocaine led to yet another crime wave in Houston in the early 1990s. Dateline, Houston, read the headline of one Los Angeles Times story from 1991. Metropolis turning into Wild West town. Lieutenant Joe Gamino, one of the two lieutenants who'd taken over for Jim Montero, decided to move all the Chicano squad officers back to day shifts. Gamino wanted to reorganize things a bit and break the squad up into small teams. After three years on the night shift, Bobby Gatewood and John Castillo were officially back on days. Bobby was a sergeant, and together they made their own mini-unit, responsible for several cases each. But it had been years since they'd had to do the daytime digging that their peers did. It was quickly apparent that translating at night was awfully different from investigating during the day. As Jaime Escalante had proven, informants with inside knowledge were the key to solving cases. Back on days, Bobby struggled. He wasn't the Chicano squad star he used to be. One night, though, he caught a break when he went out looking for a Colombian murder suspect. Dropping by an address looking for a suspect wasn't unusual. The squad members did stuff like that all the time. But it often wasn't fruitful. That particular night, though, Bobby saw the murder suspect's vehicle and called for backup. For hours, police chased the man, who they eventually found in a stranger's shower. He was arrested, and Bobby Gatewood was proud of his role. Though he couldn't get a confession that night, he figured he might get another crack at him the next day. But the next morning, just as Bobby was getting into work, he got the news. He was already out. On the streets? On $10,000 bond on a murder. For a Colombian? Yes, sir. How did this make you feel? <laughs> I was pretty pissed. Why? I mean, you know, this guy kills a guy, you know, and was running from us has a pistol on his back, he could have shot one of us, and before I could even get a chance to have a cup of coffee, he's already out. The Colombian cartel members were too slippery, too wealthy, and Bobby was missing that secret weapon so necessary for combating this kind of criminal. Informants were everything. Without an informant, you had no case. <laughs> because the people aren't going to go out there and basically talk to you. You have to get the information from someone, which is an informant. Bobby needed to get his hands on an informant, or more than one, to help him solve murders. 
Not long after, Jim Montero dropped by the office to visit his old friends in homicide. Happily retired with his wife, Jim had become a private investigator and stopped by often to chat about cases. He sat down with Bobby Gatewood, whose ego must have been bruised. Let's get a beer after work, Jim Montero suggested, sensing his friend's frustration. Since he joined the squad, Bobby Gatewood and Jim Montero had always been close. Close enough that Montero baptized Gatewood's daughter in 1979 as her padrino, or godfather. They made a plan to meet up at the library club at a Ramada Inn that evening. There, over some Miller lights, Bobby asked Jim a question he wasn't expecting. He asked me how I was doing in my business and if I wanted to make more money. In fact, quite a lot of money, 40 or 50,000 a year. Bobby Gatewood had a proposal for his friend. Well, what he talked about is about going to some stash houses where there would be some money hidden at, and maybe that money could be taken and split. Maybe Jim could be the getaway driver or the lookout, Bobby suggested. Jim couldn't believe what he was hearing coming out of Bobby Gatewood's mouth. They'd already been at it, Bobby was saying, and had been successful. A couple of years back, he and John Castillo were assigned to a double homicide. It's a man and a woman found in a car that were shot, that were killed, Colombians. It was the double homicide Jaime had been so suspicious of earlier. The one with the shoebox of money. And what did Mr. Gatewood say about this investigation? That they were assigned to go to the scene uh, with some other detectives or sergeants from the homicide division. And then they went to another location where they were searching for evidence, and that's where they found some money. Now they being referred to as strictly who, sir? Bobby Gatewood and uh, John Castillo. How much did he refer to? I don't remember. About two or 300,000. What did he say he did with that money? They uh, took it. According to what Bobby was telling Jim, he and John had found upwards of $300,000 in cash, took it to Bobby's shop, and split it up. And now, they could use a guy like Jim. He suggested that I could possibly be a lookout man or the driver of the car. Just uh, that would be the part that I would play. It was him, John Castillo, and Bobby's cousin, Gilbert. Bobby went on. What did you say to Mr. Gaywood? I didn't want no part of that. But I didn't want to talk about it anymore. I hope to forget it. Their conversation ended not long after that and Jim left. For days, Jim Montero mulled over what his friend had said. Bobby had built a reputation as a top-notch detective. It's why Jim had recruited him in the first place and they'd been very close in the early days of the squad. But they drifted apart in the last few years, just as Bobby had drifted from most of the people on the squad. Then there were all of Bobby's flashy clothes, and new cars, and fancy trips. Maybe it was earnings from the t-shirt shop. But maybe it was something else. 
They were all investigators, but had they missed the clues right in front of their faces? Finally, Jim decided to call John Castillo and ask him about what Bobby had said. If it was true, he wanted no part in the operation and wanted John Castillo to know it. Castillo swatted Montero off, pretending he had no idea what he was talking about. The next day, Jim Montero received an upset phone call from Bobby Gatewood. What did he say to you, Mr. Gatewood? Why did I talk to Castillo about it? What else did he have to say? That was it. That, well, I, I told him that it was over with. Didn't want to talk about it anymore. And he says, fine, that that was it, that they were through with that type of thing. Bobby told Jim to forget their conversation. The plan was off, he said. Did he indicate to you why or what, if anything, had made him change his mind? Something about having seen a movie or some kind of program about some officers that had been caught somewhere, yeah, either Miami or in California. Was it the TV show Cops That Go Bad or something like that? I guess. I don't know, sir. How the war on drugs is corrupting America's cops. Officers go into hotel rooms and find millions of dollars, literally. That's a tremendous temptation. The FBI calls drugs and drug money the number one threat to police integrity. Anyone who says, I've never had that problem in my police department, should add the operative word, yet. Tonight, When Cops Go Bad. When Cops Go Bad, which PBS aired on October 16, 1990, was a cautionary tale about corrupt police officers. Bobby did his best to convince Jim that he didn't intend to become one himself. And the two men left it at that. Next time on Chicano Squad. Bobby gets back to work on the squad, but continues to struggle with several narcotics-related murders that he has been assigned, all of which seem virtually unsolvable. But then, he finally lands something that had eluded him for a very long time. His own informant. But his relationship with this informant would change both Bobby's life and the future of the entire Chicano squad forever. En esta ciudad hay necesidad Caught in the in-between and swimming upstream Chicano Squad is a production of Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our show is produced by Eva Ruth Moravec and Dominique Ferrari. Associate producers for this episode are Melanie Rodriguez and Cynthia Betubiza. Our show was written by Eva Ruth Moravec and edited by Nashat Kurwa and Stacey Book. Engineering and sound design from Brandon McFarland. Our theme music was composed by The Amazing Brownout. Fact-checking by Charlotte Silver. Special thanks to the staff at the United States District Court for the Southern District of Texas in Houston and to Albi Robles. Chicano Squad is executive produced by Nishat Kurwa for Vox Media and Stacey Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Glijansky for Frequency Machine. I'm Cristela Alonso. If you like this episode and think this story is important, then you obviously have great taste. And one of the best ways to support us is to share it with your family and friends wherever you listen to podcasts. 
it's also important to share to ensure that stories like these keep getting told. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in Episode 9.